All of us have this conscience that's informed by general revelation. However, all of us have a conscience that is extremely damaged by the fall. king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Here we see Daniel being selected. He's chosen among the chosen, because this first exile was only a small exile, only the the top echelon, if you will, of society was taken in this first exile. Daniel, as we said, we've just read in the passage that he was of the tribe of Judah. The Jewish historian Josephus, we noted last week, indicated that not only was Daniel and his three friends part of the tribe of Judah, but they were also of the kingly family of Zedekiah. Zedekiah is not yet on the throne, but he will be. And Daniel and his three friends, we are told by the historian Josephus, that he was of the royal family. So here we see Daniel's chosen to be taken, and now he's chosen once again. Sort of the cream of the crop. Parallel theme here with Esther. And he's chosen among the exiles to come and enter into this program of training, this three-year program. The ones who were chosen were the best of the best. They were physically unblemished, and they were the smartest, the most intelligent. They were the quickest of the wits. They were the ones that were chosen of the chosen to enter into this program of training and the language, we're told, the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So just a few words about that. The Chaldeans, if you've ever wondered what Chaldeans were, sometimes we consider Chaldeans to be synonymous with Babylonians, and it's not quite the case. But the Chaldeans were an ethnic group that were part of the kingdom of Babylon. The Chaldeans come from an area known as Chalde, which was at the southern region of the Babylonian Empire. It would have been at the very northern tip of the the Persian Gulf. In this area, these Chalde people, or these Chaldean people, were people that were exceptionally learned, particularly in the fields of astrology, of watching the, the heavenly bodies and trying to ascertain from the movement of the heavenly bodies things to do with things here on earth. They were learned, they were well-read, and then when the Babylonian Empire was was given rise, they kind of became the the leaders of the Babylonian Empire. So we're familiar with how that sort of works when there's a political entity or a kingdom, and that kingdom is made up of multiple ethnic groups, then usually there's going to be one ethnic group that's sort of the leaders of the group, the sort of the dominant ethnic group, and that was the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the dominant ethnic group, in the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar was a, was a Chaldean. Now the Chaldeans were the magicians and the enchanters and the priests. All of this will eventually give rise later on as the next kingdom comes along, which is going to be the Persian kingdom. That's going to give rise to something that we know of as the Magi. The Magi or the wise men or the priestly class. They were the ones who inherited down from their fathers, so to speak, the Chaldeans, this interest in the movement of the heavenly bodies and the interest in in the things of the sky and trying to interpret these things. So they're going to come and they're going to visit the Christ child, but that's going to be later on. 
Now, these Chaldeans are the learned, well-read ones. They are the leaders of the society. And Daniel and his friends are taken into this three-year training program to be equipped in learning and wisdom in both the Chaldean language and the Chaldean literature. Now, the Chaldean language, we're not sure exactly what's referring to there. It uh, may be Assyrian or it may be the Babylonian language of Akkadian. Either way, Daniel would have been fluent in both of those eventually. But he's going to go into this program of learning, not only for the language, but also for the literature of the Chaldeans. So the literature of the Chaldeans, which would have been the literature also of the Babylonian Empire, was a vast array of literature. It was an incredible assortment of the highest learning of the day. And it wasn't because the Babylonians were themselves so learned and so well-read, but the Babylonian library was basically taken over from the Assyrians, whom they conquered about 10 years prior. So they seized the, the Assyrian Empire, and among it, they, they seized these incredible books of the highest learning of the day from the Assyrians. So now the Babylonian Empire is firmly in place, and now they've got all this literature, and they need people to learn this and to be sort of the intellectual leaders of the kingdom, if you will. Daniel and his friends are chosen to be among them because they are found to be without blemish, And we see, once again, the parallel there. The young men who are without blemish are paralleled to the items of the the temple that also would have been perfect. And so as the young men without blemish are taken from the temple, so also are the things taken from the temple. And then, as we said last week, they'll both be returned. But now Daniel and his friends are taken and they're put into this three-year training program in which they're going to be equipped with this higher learning, with this ability to supposedly watch and understand and perceive the movement of the heavens and the movement of the heavenly bodies. And in so doing, they will be equipped to, as it says here, to stand in the palace. Now, some commentators say that that might actually mean to something more like standing in the place of the king, or in other words, being able to speak for the king, or be a co-ruler with the king, so, so to speak. So now we're seeing a parallel once again between Daniel and, of course, Joseph. Now, the, the standing in place of the king and speaking for the king, we're going to see actually that come to fruition with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they literally are sent to a portion of the kingdom in which they are the rulers of that portion of the Babylonian kingdom. But that's yet to come. So now they enter into this program of training, and we're told that they assign them new names. We'll come back and get to that just a little bit later. But now let's pick up from verse 8. But Daniel resolved, or literally he set his heart, Daniel set his heart, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor. So we see, again, this theme that God gave, God gave. God gave them to the Babylonians, now God gave him favor. And then, just a few sentences later, God's going to give them wisdom and understanding, and then God's going to give Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and visions, which was, would have been a highly coveted gift in that society. And verse 9, God gave, again, Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let them be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the food or eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this manner, and they tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So this is one of the well-known stories of Daniel. The food, along with the lions and the furnace, those make up this trinity of well-known episodes in the story of Daniel. So Daniel here feels strongly that the king's food and the king's wine will defile him. And we're not told why he feels that they will defile him, but he feels that he'll be defiled by the king's food and the king's drink or the king's wine. So he asks that he not be given that and be given something else. God gives him favor in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, but the chief of the eunuchs fears the king more than he likes Daniel. So he's afraid that Daniel will then not be healthy. So then Daniel asks the steward who is underneath the chief eunuch, if he will then bring, give him this sort of this 10-day test, try us for 10 days, give us just vegetables and water, and at the end of 10 days, see if we're as healthy as the others. So there's this trial period, this trial of 10 days. Here is the first parallel, by the way, with the book of Revelation. Revelation 2 and verse 15, we're probably familiar with the 10-day period when Jesus says, you will be tested for 10 days and Satan will cast you into, into prison for 10 days where you'll be tested That's the first of many, many parallels between Daniel and Revelation. Few sets of books in the Bible have more in common than do Daniel and Revelation. So as we go through this, I'll try to point out these parallels between Daniel and the Revelation. But that's the first one that we come across here. So there's going to be this 10-day period in which they try this different diet. And Daniel says, put it to the test. If it doesn't work, then we'll eat the other food. So they do this. And then we know how it comes out. They're seen to be even healthier. So from this, the first thing that we need to dispel, I think, is what I find to be a particularly frustrating abuse of Scripture. Scripture is not given to us as a diet book. I have You probably have heard this too. I have heard of the Daniel diet. I don't know what it's about. I They had a friend one time that did it and actually lost a lot of weight. I have no idea what the diet's about. But it was supposedly based in Scripture. The Scriptures are not a diet book. First of all, that's not the purpose of the Scriptures. And we pervert them, we distort them, we abuse them to turn them into some sort of recipe book or diet book. They're given to us for spiritual purposes, not so that we can diet But even on its face, that should be easy to see through because we live among a tiny speck of people that have ever lived that have the relationship with food that we do. Our relationship with food is to try to not eat much of it, to try to keep our nutrition levels down, our calorie level down, that sort of thing. The vast majority of people who have ever lived had the opposite problem. And the vast majority of people who live today still have the opposite problem. Not eating too much, but having enough to eat. So plainly from the text, our ESV renders this perfectly. You see that the result is that they were seen to be fatter in flesh. And that's a wonderful rendering because the word there is fat. It's the same word in Genesis 41 that's used to describe the fat cows of Pharaoh's dream. So the healthiness that Daniel and his friends achieve from the diet is not losing weight, it's gaining weight. 
And that's sort of the whole thing is that they were eating supposedly only these vegetables and water, and yet they were meatier, fleshier. They were more big boned. They had more weight on them at the end of the period than when they began. So to take this and say, oh, let's diet like Daniel and only eat vegetables and water and lose weight, not only is that a perversion of the scriptures, it's not even reading them properly to see that the result wasn't that Daniel lost weight, Daniel gained weight. So that thing's being put aside. Hopefully none of us will, will take our scriptures and use them as a sort of a weight loss guide because that's not their intention. But in any case, we do need to ask and attempt to answer the question regarding the food and why was it that Daniel felt that eating the king's food and the king's wine, drinking the wine, would defile him. Now, the answer to that question, you might want to, in your own mind, answer that rather quickly because you have probably heard the passage preached and taught in which the reason was given and sort of accepted. That this, is, this was the reason behind the defilement of the food, why it was that Daniel and his friends didn't want to eat it. But before you answer that too quickly in your own mind, let me just walk through what are four possibilities. I think the only four possibilities. Four possibilities for why Daniel felt so strongly that the food would defile him and the wine would defile him. Notice the passage never says. Daniel just says that he didn't want to be defiled by the, by the food and wine. And we're never told why. So we had to ask the question, why? The first, I think probably the most obvious answer would be that the food from the king's table was not kosher. That somehow the, the king's food was, was probably meats and the meats were probably not clean meat, maybe swine meat, or even if it was clean meat, maybe it wasn't prepared properly, the blood drained out and that sort of thing. And so that's sort of the most obvious thing that jumps out, that the, that the food from the king's table would have been unclean for Daniel and his friends to eat. And so he doesn't want to be defiled with unclean food. That's, that makes sense, and that might be the meaning. That might be why Daniel didn't want to defile himself. However, there's a problem if that is the reason. The problem is the wine. Why would Daniel not take of the wine? Because there's nothing unclean about wine. Now, we get the, the distinct feeling in the passage that Daniel is walking on thin ice with the king and the officials to not want to partake of the king's food. So why would Daniel want to refrain from more than he had to? In other words, if there was no problem with the wine, why would he want to refer, refrain from the wine if the problem was the uncleanness of the meat? So again, that might be what's behind it, but if it is, then there's a real issue with the wine because it doesn't really make sense that he would feel that he would be defiled by the wine as well. So that's the first thing. The, the second, probably the most obvious thing that we would think of that, that might be the reason behind the, the fear of defilement would be that the food from the king's table had been food that was offered to a false god, offered to an idol. And we know that the New Testament takes up that topic on several occasions and talks about food that's been offered to an idol and should believers eat that. And, and we know Paul discusses that in places like 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 and other places. And so we know that there's a couple of different perspectives on that, particularly it comes down to being a stumbling block for others, for, for believers that Paul says would have a weaker conscience. So we know that there was this, this thing that went on in which food was offered to idols, false gods, and then it was consumed by humans. And 
the people of God have always kind of struggled with that idea. Should we eat those foods that have been offered as a sacrifice to false gods or not? So perhaps this was food that was offered to false gods and Daniel didn't want to defile himself by eating the food that would have been offered to false gods. That again might be the explanation, but if that's the explanation, we have another problem there. And the problem there is that he did eat the vegetables. Now, we might think, well, pretty safe to eat the vegetables. They probably offered just the meats to the false god and maybe the wine too, I guess. But the vegetables probably... You know, the false gods, Marduk, wasn't really interested in broccoli. But the word there, this translated vegetables, that's actually not the greatest translation because the word there is a very, very broad word, much broader than vegetables. It literally means that which is sown. So the word refers to all food that comes from a seed. So that will include vegetables. It will include roots. It will include legumes, it will include uh, fruits, it will include grains and all the breads that come from grain. So it's actually a very broad word. Now, if Daniel was refusing the king's food and wine because he feared it would be offered to idols, then he still has the same problem in eating the food that comes from the seeds because we know from our history that we know there was a common practice to not only offer just meats to false gods, but also particularly breads and other foods as well. So if that's the answer, that doesn't really answer everything. So then that's, that's two. That's first, maybe it's unclean food. Secondly, maybe it's food that's been offered to an idol. Thirdly, maybe Daniel just doesn't feel like he wants to be that obligated to the king. Maybe Daniel feels like that he's just taking too much from this pagan king and he wants to kind of draw the line somewhere. After all, this is the king that conquered his home city of Jerusalem. Perhaps Daniel's parents were killed in the siege. We don't know. Or perhaps Daniel was torn from his parents. And so perhaps there is this thing between Daniel and which he says, well, okay, we live here, we wear the clothes, we do this, we do this, but let me draw the line at eating food from his table. That could be a possibility, but that also would bring just as many problems with it because for number one, the food that Daniel eventually eats also comes from the king as well. Nothing that Daniel does right now is going to be of his own. So whether he eats the fruits and vegetables and breads or whether he eats from the king's, it all comes from the king. Secondly, we also know that the story of Daniel is going to show us the picture of a man who has a great affinity with his captors. We're going to see that in multiple occasions in Daniel where Daniel truly loves his captors. So that wouldn't really answer it all either. So the last possibility, and this might be the possibility that has the most support from the text, the last possibility might be the food from the king's table was the richest food. It was the most luxurious. It was the lavish food. And so Daniel is taking exception to the lavishness of the king's food. He perhaps doesn't feel right eating from the king's table when his brothers are in bondage and maybe even his kinsmen back home don't have anything to eat at all. And here Daniel's eating this rich, lavish food from the king's table. And perhaps that's why Daniel says, I don't want to be defiled by me eating this lavish type food while others go hungry. There is a little bit perhaps of support from the text from that because the concern 
from the chief eunuch and the steward is that Daniel will not then have enough caloric intake. So perhaps there's something there. But then again, that brings up just as much questions and problems as it would answer. So what we end up with is that there is no clear answer as to why Daniel feels so strongly that the food from the king's table and the king's wine will defile him. And so let me offer what I feel like is the best way to understand Daniel's actions here. What we're being given here in the passage of Scripture is a wisdom decision. I feel like that what Daniel is facing is a discernment issue. A discernment issue in which he is led to feel strongly that he and his friends would be defiled by this food and wine, but it's a discernment thing, a wisdom thing. This is a Christian conscience thing. There's no specific chapter and verse that Daniel says, well, that's why this would defile me. Look up Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 7. We don't have that. So I think that there's something about this that Daniel has laid in his heart to feel like this would not be wise or helpful or appropriate for me and for my three friends. And so we would be defiled. But that's not the case with others. So here's a couple reasons that I think that that's... First of all, we don't have a clear, obvious answer as to why Daniel feels the food and the wine will defile him. But we also know a couple of other things. First of all, we know, remember Jehoiachin? We talked about Jehoiachin last week. Jehoiachin was the king for just a few months during the siege, and he was taken away as prisoner as well. Two times we're told that Jehoiachin eats the same food that Daniel refuses. 2 Kings 25, verse 39 and 40, and Jeremiah 52 both tell us that Jehoiachin sits down at the very same table that Daniel refused. Jehoiachin is a Jew as well. Maybe Jehoiachin was just not as holy and righteous as Daniel. Maybe he was just more willing to go along with it and sin. Maybe so. But the other thing that couples together with that is this. If we look to Daniel chapter 10 verse 2, in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 2, we're told that Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, well, let me say it again. We're not specifically told this, but there's a strong implication that Daniel is now eating the food from the king's table. Chapter 10 and verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So Daniel doesn't specifically say, I was eating the delicacies before, but isn't that a strong implication that he was eating them and then stopped? Okay, so if we put all these things together, then what I come up with is that this is a discernment thing for Daniel. There's something about this, maybe akin to Romans 14, where Paul talks about how there are some people, there's some Christians who think that these days are holy, and other Christians think that those days are not holy, and Paul says that's nothing to fight over. In your heart, be convinced in your heart. Or Paul goes on to say some people eat these foods and other people think those foods aren't to be eaten. But Paul says, in your heart, be convinced of what you've been led to believe. Or 1 Corinthians 8, the same sort of thing. This is a wisdom issue for Daniel. 
There is no specific command of God that's saying to him, do not eat that food and drink that wine. Because there's no chapter and there's no verse that says, you know, when you're taken captive by a pagan king and told to eat his table and drink his wine, here's what you do. There's no chapter and verse that says that. So Daniel is going to have to apply discernment, wisdom, and this thing called the Christian conscience. So this is a perfect opportunity for us to pause for just a few minutes and think about the Christian conscience, what it is and why it's so important and how it's coming to bear on Daniel in this story. So what is the Christian conscience? Well, the word Christian there is just an adjective. We could just say, what's the conscience? Because all people, Christian or not, have one. It's part of being created in the image of God. We bear the image of God. And part of bearing His image means that He has created us with this thing called our conscience. Now, what is our conscience? We sometimes know what our conscience does, but what is our conscience? Our conscience is part of us. It's not part of the God who indwells us. It's part of us. God created us with this conscience. And this conscience, you can think of it like a a built-in moral compass a built-in moral compass that is designed to give us an indication of right or wrong. Now, our conscience is set in motion or put into place by the means of revelation, revelation from God. And so all people are born with a conscience that's informed about what is right and what is wrong from general revelation. General revelation just means you look around, wow, this is an amazing world. There has to be a God that created this. And there there has to be a a God that made all these things, and He has to be powerful, and He has to be good. And I, I have to be in submission to Him because He's the Creator. That's general revelation. That's what we learn from general revelation. So all of us have this conscience that's informed by general revelation. However... All of us have a conscience that is extremely damaged by the fall, distorted by the fall. So that that compass that was designed to point to true north no longer really points to true north, at least not in many situations. And so then we have this situation in which all people have this conscience, but the conscience doesn't always point them in the right direction. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.